So one of the things that Piersig had very much skin in the game experience with was what happened to him when he started to express ideas that were antithetical to the culture that he was living in. So, you know, as a, as a young, as, as somebody that had an IQ of 170, had traveled to the East, studied Hindu philosophy, come back to the West, and then while interrogating the question of quality had become catatonically, um, let's say in a catatonic state, had basically appeared to all intents and purposes, appeared insane. Um, the culture that he was in had no choice but to categorize him as being insane and institutionalize him and effectively try and electroconvulse him to try and normalize him, right? And Piercing explains that the idea of classifying somebody as insane as a sort of binary operation of there is right, which is sane, and then there is wrong, which is insane, is a completely false, um, it's a completely false categorization uh -huh. because in any in any higher in any culture, the person or you know group or or, or individual who encourages or incites change in the culture is by definition uh, thinking outside of the norms of the culture itself, right. which means that anybody that wants to change the way the culture is operating technically then is right. insane. Right. So Piersig explains that the people that instigate change or the people that dynamically sense that there is a higher moral pursuit that the culture should be interfacing with is of course going to come into conflict with the current culture's value system. Mm. And the way that most cultures deal with that is to simply uh, disregard that person as being defective. Mm. When in fact, they could be holding the keys to future prosperous, you know, activity for the whole mm. culture that could be good for everyone. Mm. But this is a byproduct of, of a an unavoidable feature of evolution itself, which is that in much the same way you have, um, you know, you have DNA, which is experimenting um, with different configurations of how to code an organism, mm -hmm. it protects itself with protein, which reinforces mm -hmm. the defense measures to stop the DNA from being destroyed. Right. So a cell has an immune system, a protective barrier that stops alien concepts from getting in Mm -hmm. And Piersig talks about the example of um, a figure in Zuni culture as a representation of how cultures have immune systems. Mm -hmm. And it's important because the actual culture itself is a static pattern. And the static pattern is a way of latching and preserving progress. Mm -hmm. So you have to be defensive of your culture because to not be defensive of your culture would leave it open to attack. Right. But if you're too defensive, then you're not open to adaptation. It's too rigid. Yeah. Which goes back once again to our middle way concept, which mm -hmm. is that in mature cultures that are aware of the need for preservation of values, but also aware of the importance of being open to dynamic new values. Mm-hmm. They are balanced in the way that they they manage themselves, and you know, for example, democracy is conceivably an attempt to be both dynamic and static at the same time, right. because in theory, it's supposed to be a mechanism by which you avoid regression, 
while leaving right. yourself open for people to say we need progressive changes. Yes. And we we haven't mastered at this scale of evolution. We haven't mastered the mechanisms that need to be in play for uh, cultural evolution. But you but, but you bring up the point there that with democracy, it's um, Peterson brings this point home a lot. It's the freedom of speech that preserves simultaneously preserves the integrity of the hierarchy, but also allows the free flow of information such that it can adapt and evolve and revivify itself. So it's the middle way between integrity, rigidity, and fluidity and adaptivity. It's the middle way, freedom of speech. And that's also represented mythologically in the eye of Horus, like on the back of the dollar, the eye on top of the pyramid. It's the attention and the awareness resting on the structural integrity of the pyramid, but that, that still has attention, right? That it can yeah. take in new information and re, re, revivify or refresh itself over time. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and, and I think that that's what Peterson talks about, the idea of going into the belly of the whale to save your father. Mm -hmm. And he talks about that as, I remember him talking on Joe Rogan about what he conceptualized that as. And I, I think that he conceptualized it in quite a complicated way. I think what it simply means is that when your culture deviates away from something which is uh, moral, sometimes the best course of action is to retrace your steps to a previously latched static system right. that contains the stability in order to attempt a new route outwards. Right. So if you go down a wrong road, just say you're in the countryside and you go down the wrong country lane and you don't know where you're going. Yeah. You could try and take other country lanes you haven't been down to try and find your way back, but you could just get more lost. Yep. So sometimes the best way and the, the most time efficient way to deal with that mistake is to simply turn around and it's go back. Track. Yeah. It's the backtrack. And I think that going into the belly of the whale to save your father means to stop your progressive dynamic steps forward into the abyss when they're not helping and retrace your steps to a previously saved moral standard yeah. in order to regroup reorganize yeah. yourself under a known system so i think it's a static latch mythology and back to the fundamental presumption of this or i guess presupposition of this book is that we did take a wrong step when we said everything is subject object right not to say that it's totally wrong it's not usable at all clearly it's very useful we've come a long way but it is not the only answer, not, a, not an all-encompassing answer, which Piersig is making the case for here. Yes, yeah, in Zen, Piersig has a, you know, a very, it's not a hidden gripe. He's, he's deeply resentful of Aristotle because he recognizes that with the best of intentions, Aristotle set the framework that would become so damaging to even 20th century history with all the deaths that came mm -hmm. with it is a byproduct of this subject object um, categorization. Totalitarianism is a result of, of rational objectivity. Right. Atheism is. Right. And, and it is because of a detachment from the awareness that uh, that you cannot have your knowledge complete. Right. You know, like yeah. totalitarians believe their knowledge is complete and that's because of their belief that they've mastered the objective realm and that, you know, delude themselves. And this, okay. this, this, this concept is also confirmed in Ian McGilchrist's book, um, The Master and His Emissary. Yes. Which speaks to the, 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 
the the way that Western civilization has become monstrous in the last you know five six hundred years is a byproduct of us becoming uh, left hemispheric dominant and left hemisphere the left hemisphere specializes in rational objectivity and things and itemization all the things that we use for scientific rationalism is left hemisphere it's supposed to be a a, a tool for the right hemisphere to cross check mm-hmm. things but it became mm-hmm. the master mm-hmm. and all of the horrific shit that we see in the world today is a byproduct of left hemispheric dominance because we've lost the middle way. We don't we don't utilize the right hemisphere like the Eastern philosophy does. Is all about cohesion, unity, yes. connection, ambiguity. Yeah. The right hemisphere loves ambiguity. The left yeah. hemisphere loves certainty yeah. to a point where it will create certainty that doesn't exist just to rationalize its own security. Right, and I I would imagine that that left hemispheric dominance is perhaps a byproduct of the focus on this subject object duality where we've been become so focused on what is objectively true and eliminating all subjectivity and values from all analysis that we're we're atrophying the right side the master right in favor of the emissary in a way well, uh, McGill Christ goes on to explain that the people that have left hemispheric dominance um, share similar attributes to people who have had right hemispheric strokes, right? Which is that they become unempathic, they become um, highly uh, post-rationalizing, where you know their body will do something that is completely out of their control, and they will say, "No, I chose to do that," you know. Yeah. Because that's what the left hemisphere does. Because it ha- the left hemisphere deals in certainty, right? The right hemisphere ambiguity. Yes. When you're at, when you're at peace with ambiguity, you don't try and control an entire nation and put them in camps. Right, right, right. And this is much more Zen or Buddhist or Taoist is at peace with ambiguity. This is an interesting aspect. So just just to do a quick shoot off here, and we'll come right back. Socialism, actually, the Mises has a great written work on this of. And he's, he's famous for laying out the objective, I will use here, reasons why socialism does not work. And it's essentially because it is starved of information, frankly. So without the free exchange of goods and services in the market for a price to continuously be discovered and rediscovered so that people can orient themselves against the realities of we could say static supply dynamic demand right they intersect at the price if that point of perception cannot be discovered via free exchange in the marketplace then the organization of human action and the allocation of capital uh, fails effectively. So you have a, a small group of people, a small centralized computing body, uh, a bureaucracy or a pricing czar, trying to determine what to do with all of these resources, competing with a decentralized computing model of a free market that's allocating resources in accordance with the wishes of the, the whole effectively. So it, it's interesting to me that the totalitarian model becomes too rigid because it lacks liquidity of information, right? It just ossifies, rigidifies, and then crumbles. 
And that is exactly what is described by the Austrians. It's like, in fact, there is no price discovery. There is no price mechanism. So the whole thing just crumbles. There's no, no, no liquidity of ideas. So it's back to that necessary middle way between static and, and dynamic that, um, that and, socialism lacks. And to use, to use an analogy that fits, I think, with that idea of human action and the exchange, the idea that a culture has an immune system or a company has an immune system or a, or a body has an immune system or a cell has an immune system. They all have immune systems because immune systems are the barrier through which you dictate what is exchanged. Mm-hmm. It lets some things in, it lets some things out. Right. The gatekeepers. It's the gatekeepers. The, mm-hmm. it, it's it's the, the, the exchange itself is controlled by the gatekeepers and that is what we call immune systems. Now, going to this idea of totalitarianism, that is when a immune system is set pathologically to be one way. Mm-hmm. And the only thing it will let in is things it can consume. And the only thing it will put out is, is something to attack. And it will only absorb from its host. And we have a word for that in the biological sense when a community of cells go rogue and become totalitarian in their immune system and we have a word it's called cancer mm-hmm. yeah when yeah. a cancer starts to take over a body it's because it's no longer exchanging information with its host mm. it is simply consuming what it wants without going into an exchange with it it's right. no longer it's no longer exchanging mutually beneficial information it's just decided to go on its own totalitarian bent of i'm all that matters Right. You know, a cancerous tumor is so self-serving. Its knowledge is complete. Right. It knows what it wants and what it needs, but it has no awareness that it's killing yeah. the very host that it requires to live. Yes. yes. So, and I think that the same thing, central banking, for example, could be described in, in intellectual terms, uh, following the same fundamental metaphysical principles as a cancer. Well, there's another very, I think, meaningful analogy there and that the cells we have programmed cell death right in a biological level uh, autophagy i think is what it's called um and this is what capitalism does right if a business fails if a business creates losses it fails and the capital that composed that business gets reallocated to other aims that are profitable Central banking prevents the death of businesses. It is artificially pumping lifeblood into these zombie companies. So it's creating this, yeah, tumors. And once again, distorting information, central banking is distorting the pricing mechanism. So we don't know if an increase in price is a product of supply and demand or a product of policy. It's impossible to disentangle. So it's it's almost like information is the lifeblood of these, you know, you call them organisms or organizations, they're all forms of static quality, effectively. Yeah. And when you cut them off from that, that wellspring of life force, you get pathology and and death. Or I guess pathology, sorry, pathology, you don't, you need the death, the individual death of companies to benefit the entire marketplace, you need the individual death of cells to prevent cancerous overgrowth. Yes. And yeah. And, and it's funny you sh- like when you put it in that way, it, it, answers, it, it calls back to the idea of um, what we talked about 
a few month, uh, a month ago with the idea of Jesus Christ being the guy that dies on the cross for, for the sins of mankind, sins being missing the mark. And he dies and then is reborn and, and he dies for everyone else's um, everyone else, you know, is is effectively given a reward for his death. Like mm -hmm. salvation is is given to humanity because he suffers on the cross and dies. And that's yeah. an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur yes. who attempts something, fails, the community learns from it, right. and then and then and then it's reborn. In in the case of keeping zombie corporations alive. It's a lie, right? It's the, that's what in, in, in biblical mythology, the enemy is the deceiver, right? He is the creator of, of, of lies. He's, he's opposite of the truth. And that is what basically cancer is doing, right? It is this uh, cell overgrowth that does not die, consumes the organism. So it's also in, in the, the framework of Persig's work here would be the individual, the lower level static quality, the cell actually consuming the higher level static quality, right? Which is the organism. So it'd be like the individual consuming the city, um, which is also totalitarian and, and central bank like. So it is, yeah, it, and through a lot of different lenses, it is truth destroying, information destroying, evil, deceptive, um, immoral. Right. Which again, which as I guess we haven't defined it yet, but in more immorality is that it's the lower level consuming the higher level. And when you look at Eastern philosophy, it talks about how the root of all suffering is attachment. Yes. Attachment is holding on to static patterns yes. to the detriment of the flow of life. Yes. The central banks, the zombie corporations, none of them are letting go. They're yeah. all attached and in the act of attaching themselves, they're going to cause the flood, you know, yes. and that's when. Yes, you know. yes. So, so this, is the, this is a core yogic principle too, is life is letting go. Like, yes, life, life is, is letting go. <laughs> well, life is dynamic quality because yes. without dynamic quality, you are a robot. You are yes. just running, which is what people get into when they, when they, um, this is why I think they talk about the vices in the Bible, when you become an addict to alcohol and consumption and, and, and you let your biological value system govern everything. Oh, I want chocolate. I'll have chocolate. Yeah. Oh, I want, I want sex. I'll have sex. Oh, yeah. I want to gamble. I, you're, what you're actually doing is operating at a level of, of morality, which yeah. is moral. It yeah. is moral. It's moral to your biology. Biologically your moral. Yes. Loving it. It's yeah. loving it. Right. But your biology is literally turning into a full form tumor because it's yes. consuming energy that is starving the upper levels of, of awareness. Yes. And you're stealing so, time, you know, you're shortening your life for say your children, right? So you're actually stealing from the communal organism, yes. right? Yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then when you look at the Bible's, um, the Bible referencing all its vices, the, the sins, mm -hmm. all of the sins are representations of what happens when you let biological value drive a social being yes so you you uh you eat know too much so gluttony eat too much gluttony need. pride and pride is considered pride. the most dangerous because once you become proud you can basically validate the other six sins as being virtuous yes so it's like it's like a meta sin yes by definition and i think it's the path pride leads to arrogance arrogance leads to totalizing knowledge or belief in totalizing knowledge belief in totalizing knowledge is separation from 
dynamic quality, which is God, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It stops you from progressing, and yeah, and it also, you know, what's the opposite of pride? Pride is shame, and the Bible speaks. You know, I think it's been misinterpreted, or or at least misdirected over the course of the institutionalization of religion. You know, because I've got no. I don't, I don't believe, I think the Catholic church is as corrupt as any other static system. Mm. Um, but the idea of shame is important because shame is, is a, is a stepping stone towards atonement and mm. towards renewal and towards, right. and towards, uh, you know, um, redemption mm. because you first need to feel a sense. And we've all, we've all got the, the prerequisites to feel ashamed of something. If you're proud, you obscure anything to be ashamed of and you perpetuate whatever behavior you're already continuing with, which is a form of attachment, which mm -hmm. leads to the other sins. So um, in, the, in the context of piercing, you could say that the, the, the moral framework that, mytho that the Bible mythologically provides is, a, is an operations manual to remind you to not let your biological patterns of value overwhelm your social responsibilities right that you could summarize it as that yeah you know? your yeah. social patterns will deteriorate if you let the biological value patterns overwhelm you yes yeah and those biological patterns they have they have they are their own form of morality but they're a lower form of morality than social morality right social morality is a lower form of morality than intellectual morality where you come up with concepts like civil rights and and ethics and yes um, the right to a, to a innocent until proven guilty and justice. Those yeah. are all concepts. Yes. And they, they can, can free society from the constraints of biological impulses in situations like when a crime is committed, yeah. biology says revenge. Yes. Intellectual patterns say justice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they're in conflict, you know, yes. and, and in piercing system, it's, it's not just, subjective wishy-washy it's clear it's clarified morality has a compass phaedrus says what makes killing a criminal immoral is that a criminal is not just a biological organism he is not even just a defective unit of society whenever you kill a human being you are killing a source of thought too a human being is a collection of ideas, and these ideas take a moral precedence over a society. Ideas are patterns of value. They are at a higher level of evolution than social patterns of value. Just as it is more immoral for a doctor to kill a germ than a patient, so it is more moral for an idea to kill a society than it is for a society to kill an idea. And beyond that is an even more compelling reason. Societies and thoughts and principles themselves are no more than sets of static patterns. These patterns can't by themselves perceive or adjust to dynamic quality. Only a living being can do that. The strongest moral argument against capital punishment is that it weakens a society's dynamic capability, its capability for change and evolution. What was emerging was that the static patterns that hold one level of organization together are often the same patterns that another level of organization must fight to maintain its own existence. Morality is not a simple set of rules. 
It is a very complex struggle of conflicting patterns of values. This conflict is the residue of evolution. As new patterns evolve, they come into conflict with old ones. Each stage of evolution creates in its wake a wash of problems. It's out of this struggle between conflicting static patterns that the concepts of good and evil arise. Thus, the evil of disease, which the doctor is absolutely morally committed to stop, is not an evil at all within the germ's lower static pattern of morality. The germ is making a moral effort to stave off its own destruction by lower level inorganic forces of evil. Evil, you know, almost the purpose of evil is to test the integrity of the good in a way that this conflict is ineradicable and it's necessary at every level for growth in a way you need. And this gets back to the nature of, you know, cooperation, but competition as well. Competition is what, um, really brings out the best in whatever element is competing sort of forces it to become its best and when you dampen that in any way through totalitarian knowledge or through manipulation of the market or you know central banking you're actually dampening competition you're getting a poor outcome as a result yeah um, yeah, yeah yeah and it, it's funny uh what was it the other, something you just said sparked something and it was to do with exchange it was to do with god oh yeah oh yeah it was to do with um if God in Sanskrit is good, good is exchange, and exchange is is the foundation of all life because mm -hmm. we're, we're all acting and participating in in interchange in in, in, in yeah. an inter exchange of value. Then it makes sense of why the Bible says that God created Satan, because in the dynamic act of dynamically building a system that then later corrupts itself in relation to the higher levels of morality that dynamic continue dynamic quality continues to build then of course the exchange of god who is exchange creating the, the the static system by exchanging with dynamic value literally creates the systems that will later be seen as evil so it literally is like you said it, it's ineradicable that the moral act of creating static quality is inseparable from the act of creating evil because evil is relative to the dynamic morality that's created after each static latch. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm, yeah. The, called back to the dream Peterson described himself having where he was in an arena pitted against Satan and he defeated Satan and then asked God after the fact, you know, why did you pit me in this arena against Satan? And God said, because I knew that you could succeed or something to that effect. Like I knew you could do it. So it's like they, good needs the test of evil to exist in the same way that light needs darkness to be perceived, I guess, or something. It's like you need, you can't have up without down. It's just, you're kind of stuck in duality a, a bit, but it's the nature of of being for us, at least. Could it could it not be synonymous with um, don't trust verify that going into combat with Satan is going into combat with the old static systems in the pursuit of a new moral ideal, but you cannot verify that that moral ideal is good until you fought what comes below it. So the, the act of confronting the static systems that are represented as Satan 
is the verification of the new moral ideal that becomes the next Satan over time, which is that idea, again, with the Dark Knight, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Because a hero creates new patterns, but if he maintains control for too long, he is by definition the tyrant. Yeah. It's incredible. And just to zero in on that, you know, God is good. God has this etymological root in the word, both words, both good and exchange. And again, in an Austrian lens, things only become economic goods once demand outstrips supply. So once dynamic quality outstrips static quality, that means there's more demand for the thing than there is of the thing. So all of a sudden it develops a market price. It becomes, it starts to be exchanged. So there's this, that therein is that economic microcosm of giving meaning to matter, right? Oxygen is not an economic good because it's it's in so much abundance, we don't trade it. It's clearly very vital to life, but the supply outstrips the demand. The static outstrips the dynamic. So we don't need a market price. It's not an economic good. Um, Something like that's much less essential, beer, for instance, to life does have a price because the demand for beer outstrips the supply. So it's this these very concepts of good and exchange they they are they're so fundamental to an economy um which is a microcosm of this larger dynamic we're describing of dynamic quality um building itself on top of static quality i wonder if yeah yeah i wonder if in the context of that dynamic quality has a direct proportional um, relationship to scarcity Mm. because at the moment of a dynamic innovation it is scarce and highly valuable but over time as it becomes static it becomes self-fractal self self self-replicating becomes commodified and then something that was once very precious becomes ubiquitous and becomes everywhere yes in a healthily functioning economy yes if it's healthy yeah. yeah and then that's and what then, it, i mean that's what the price is telling you is like hey we need more of this thing right the more profits there are in an industry or the higher the price that means there's more that means the divergence between demand and supply is sufficiently high to draw more human action towards resolving that problem so over time it should pull the dynamic into the static the commodified good for instance today you know the, the light light is a great example where you know, when we used to have to go and hunt whales to get their blubber to make a candle to have one hour of candle light, yeah, it yeah, costs like yeah. a day's wage to have a candle. Whereas to light a room now, how much does that cost in terms of the average labor hour? It's probably five minutes of work or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Less. So we, we, we commodify the things that are important to us over time in a healthily functioning, in a healthily functioning economy and the price falls precipitously that gives us then a static base on which to build civilization even further. Like in the case of light, now I can sit here and read a book all night. I can learn even more and get better at my job, go out into the world, satisfy even more wants, build a larger base, yeah, yeah, yeah. create yep, more freedom. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's, it's everywhere. It's, we sound maybe like crazy people to our audience right now, but I'm telling you this metaphysics of quality is 
everywhere. Uh, I keep it looking is. at it through, through an economic lens because that's what I'm predisposed to. Um, but it's but, it's it's like the it's like the um, what's that what's that word for a short story that kind of holds a deeper meaning? The uh, the story of the the two fish swimming along and then like the old the fish. Yeah, the fable, and he says, you know, how's how's the water, boys? And they're yeah. like, yeah. what the hell's water? What's water? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Should we talk about the Bruyo and the Zuni and the yeah. American values or should we save that for next time? Let's um let's talk a little bit just about the the example of the cultural immune system in action, and then that can set us up for the for the for the incredible example of of how American the American culture is is defined by an unwritten hero, which is the Native Americans, yes. um, which is such an once you see it, you just go, oh my god, like so how self evident is yeah. this that that the entire culture is predicated on American Ameri Native American values. Yes. Um, but the, the story that, that uh, Piercig uses as an anecdote is, is from a book that he read um, by an anthropologist that talks about the Zuni culture in, I think it's Mexico. And in the Zuni culture, there's a, 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 a character that was called the Brujo. And in the story, Brujo in, in, in Spanish means witch doctor. Um, and in this story, he was the basically the village drunk. He was an outcast. He was, you know, occasionally violent. He was, um, you know, highly volatile. People thought he was nuts. He was a window peeper. So he was really just this complete outside figure that everyone kind of saw as being at best a joke, at worst dangerous. And um, and at some point he challenged, he, he was always criticizing the way that the, the culture was doing things and he had kind of kind of a conviction. And at some point he he infuriated the priests of the culture who, uh, who hung him up by his thumbs and broke his shoulders and effectively punished him for being antithetical to the culture. And um, the, the priests were, let's say, the gatekeepers of the static quality of the culture. And they were upholding the morality of the existing culture, the static good. And the Brujo was pure potential in the in his dynamic, um, let's say, destructive slash creative slash uh, disruptive function within the, the culture. He was pursuing a, a, a kind of ideal in criticizing the way the culture was operating that other people thought was insane, but it was governed by an inner conviction in him. Um, 
And at the last minute before he was basically executed, uh, a, 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 a culture came to interject that was governed by the, the whites effectively. Like, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the heritage was, but a white cultural uh, kind of force interfered to save the Brujo. Yes. So word got out. And it turned out that this Brujo figure, while being an alien figure to his own culture, had the, let's say, the diplomacy and the um, ability to interface with a more powerful culture next door. Mm-hmm. And in some sense was, was uh, let's say, a bridge towards another culture that could, in theory, devour the culture that he was from. Mm-hmm. And they came in and saved him. And then the priests were put in prison for basically torturing him. And he was crippled and his back was crippled. And um, the tribe kind of thought that after all of this drama, the Brujo was going to disappear. And instead, he took up the mantle of responsibility for filling in the space that was absent in the priest's absence because they had been arrested by the other culture. And he took on the responsibility of, of um, organi- an organize- being an organizing principal for the, for the standards of the tribe. And then in doing so, he replaced a lot of the cultural framework and the tribe itself evolved to become, let's say, co-adaptive with with the other um, alien tribes around it. So in some sense, he saved the tribe from the inevitable, let's say, apocalypse of if they hadn't been able to make make themselves compatible with a more dangerous and more powerful tribe that would eventually take them out. Yes. So initially, the tribe and the priests would identify him as being insane and a threat to the tribe's stability. Mm-hmm. But by following his dynamic conviction and saying, you know, I'm following an ideal that's higher than, than the morality that you guys have internalized, he effectively saved the tribe and, uh, and forced it to adapt to an age that it needed to adapt to. So he, right. it, it, in, in some sense, he held more truth than the existing system. Yes. So the Brujo is the witch doctor the insane one that changes the cultural trajectory. And I've got a quote here, which I think is quite good, which summarizes what the function of a priest is versus a shaman. And he's, Rougeau is a shaman, a mystic, and a priest is effectively a bureaucrat. So priests work in a rigorously structured hierarchy fixed in a firm set of traditions. Their power comes from and is vested in the organization itself. They constitute a religious bureaucracy. Shamans, on the other hand, are arrant individualists. Each is on his own, undisciplined by bureaucratic control. Hence, a shaman is always a threat to the order of the organized church. In the view of the priests, uh, they are presumptive pretenders. Joan of Arc was a shaman, for she communed directly with the angels of God. She steadfastly refused to recant and admit delusion, and her martyrdom was ordained by the functionaries of the church. The struggle between shaman and priest may well be a death struggle. Mm. When you believe in an ideal which is outside of the norms of your culture, you may pay the price for having that ideal because the culture sees it as a threat. Persig says, as Phaedrus thought about this context again and again, it became apparent there were two kinds of good and evil involved. The tribal frame of values that condemned the brujo and led to his punishment was one kind of good for which Phaedrus coined the term static good. Each culture has its own pattern of static good derived from fixed laws and the traditions and values that underlie them. 
this pattern of static good is the essential structure of the culture itself and defines it. In the static sense, the Bruyo was very clearly evil to oppose the appointed authorities of his tribe. Suppose everyone did that. The whole Zuni culture, after thousands of years of continuous survival, would collapse into chaos. But in addition, there's a dynamic good that is outside of any culture that cannot be contained by any system of precepts, but has to be continually rediscovered as a culture evolves. Good and evil are not entirely a matter of tribal custom. There has to be another source of good and evil outside the tribal customs that produces the tribal change. If you asked the Bruyo what ethical principles he was following, he probably wouldn't have been able to tell you. He wouldn't have understood what you were talking about. He was just following some vague sense of betterness that he couldn't have defined if he had wanted to. Probably the war priest thought he was some kind of egotist trying to build his own image by tearing down tribal authority. A tribe can change its values only person by person and someone has to be first. Whoever is first obviously is going to be in conflict with everybody else. He didn't have to change his ways to conform to the culture only because the culture was changing its ways to conform to him. And that is what made him see like such a leader. Probably he wasn't telling anyone to do this or to do that so much as he was just being himself. He may never have seen his struggle as anything but a personal one, but because the culture was in transition, many people saw this Bruyo's ways to be of higher quality than those of the old priest and tried to become more like him. In this dynamic sense, the Bruyo was good because he saw a new source for good and evil before the other members of the tribe did. And it turned out, I, I believe that the Brujo was educated by the whites or something to that effect. So he had grown up interfacing with the white culture more than the, he was. The, yes. So, so as, as an outsider of his own tribe, he was receptive and open to other value systems. So yes. in other words, he was like, he had his own immune system that was willing to, to exchange values with outsiders. And in the act of exchanging values, he could not only update his own internal value system, he could also become a, a diplomatic bridge between two cultural immune systems that would avoid the apocalypse yes. of, of the, let's say, more vulnerable force. Right, so, so by... by interacting with this foreign value system in the whites he assimilated yeah. some of its properties or values into himself in returning to his tribe he's then because of the values that now inhabit him if you want to put it that way he's now viewed as a, a foreign agent in a way right yeah and they, that's why they string him up and all of these things but as it turns out zooming out on this broader confluence of value systems of this large you know white value system uh inter or colliding with this smaller zuni um value system or cultural system that actually the white system would have ultimately 
probably massacred these people yes. or done whatever was necessary to just conquer them and move on had yeah. there not been some cultural or value bridge between the two cultures. And that's effectively yeah. what the Brujo became. Yes. So he became this, this intermediate, this, this intermediate agent, if you will, between a larger, more dominant value system and a, a smaller value system. And it just shows how I thought it just, it brilliantly um, reifies these concepts, these abstract concepts of static and dynamic quality. It just reifies it and concretizes it in a very understandable cultural narrative that I thought was just brilliant. And then from that simple cultural exchange, you can now see how values move across people, across time and space, and how we change as a result, right? Like the Zuni that strung him up and the Zuni that they made him mayor, I think later on, right? As the outcast, and he ended up being the leader of the tribe. So he literally, you know, started from the bottom, now we're here kind of thing. And well, he, would, he would later be seen as the savior. Right. And that's the, um, Carl Jung makes that point that uh, the fool is often the precursor to the savior. So, and that's what this is, right? That's why he was the fool to his culture that was preserving its own static stability. That was, that gave it utility, right? That was pragmatically truthful across history. But going into the future, it would no longer be pragma pragmatically truthful because it would not be useful interfacing with this new dominant white value system. And so he embodied the values that were necessary for survival. And that's ultimately what elevated him from the fool to the savior. Um, I mean, I've just, I, if you don't read this book, just go read this one section of the book because I'd never conceptualized value at all you know still struggling to conceptualize that but now you you can almost see it scientifically in a way moving through people like why it's moving through people why a certain set of values outcompetes another set of values um it just it, it combined a lot of tied off a lot of loose ends for me i guess you would say yes i, I think as a general principle i think that no matter how much we try and make the structure of, of this conversation cohesive to people that haven't read the book, ultimately, this is a book club. And yeah. if you read the book, everything that we're talking about is going to be an expansion from that root point. Yes. So it's almost like, please read the book, because yeah. it's the most important <laughs> book. And then you'll get some, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy, you'll be as enthusiastic as we are, and you'll, you'll be able to, to contribute your own intellectual power to our meanderings. Yeah, that you'll to it. see things we don't see too. That's the other, yes. you know, because yeah, yeah, this yeah. book is a it's classic so and it has yeah. so many layers of meaning, it can be interpreted so many different ways. Uh, yeah. Clearly, I keep looking at it through an economics lens, but I, I'm sure it's... Well, well, but this is the thing. That, this is the thing that's so powerful is that this book actually, in some sense, you know... The, what we're getting to here at the root of it is that once you start seeing that the word God has its root in the word exchange. Yes. <laughs> and once you see that action is the participatory um, exchange with others of, 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 of value. Yeah. 
then you realize that economics isn't just a subsection of, of experience. It's right. the whole damn thing. It's the whole damn thing. It's, it's yeah. everything. The purpose economics of exchange is... of value to construct the good and resist evil, I guess you with as retrogression. Um, it is us emulating the creator, right? If you look in the book, the, the Bible, how God built the world, all of a sudden, you are in, you know, we're embodying the Christ archetype by being an entrepreneur, right? By taking risk on the behalf of others, by creating good and useful order from the chaos of nature, like it all, and I'm not trying, I'm not attempting to, nor do I think anyone should like, you're saying, oh, the Bible's an economics book. Like, no, that's not what you're saying. You're saying this is one way to interpret it. One very important way though, if you think about how you spend most of your time, most people spend most of their time working. And what you do at work is how you contribute and interface with economic reality. So well, one, one way that I, I keep on thinking about it as an all encompassing thing is that the, the Bible is this mythological uh, story about morality. And the entire universe is effectively a moral marketplace yes. with various tiers of moral goods, yes. low level moral goods at the inorganic level, medium moral goods at the biological level, you know, semi high moral goods at the social level and, you know, very high, very high moral goods at the intellectual level when you come up with ideas of principles. So, so the idea of economics is, is effectively, and, and what we're talking about, Leela, it's all about the principles of operating within the moral marketplace which yeah. is human action human action is where that moral marketplace reaches its highest density because it's where inorganic biological social and intellectual all meet in yes. one conscious stream that's yes. what a human being is right a con conscious they're like the logos it's where all of these values accumulate in one conscious stream red blood cells we're white blood cells mm -hmm. we're 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 organs, we're, we're urges, we're, we're biological drives, we're social drives, we're social, you know, we've got yeah. all of these things happening, which is why I think the idea of Christ on the, the cross is so yeah. pertinent, because when you've got biological urges and social urges and intellectual urges, you're being torn apart by different yeah. value drives. Yeah. And your job is to come up with the Holy Trinity of social drives, biological drives and intellectual drives in some form of harmony, yes. but it's never going to be perfect. So it's going to be painful. You're going to suffer. Right. Because you're is, trying yeah. to appease. You're trying to appease three different, uh, it's like having three different people inside of you. Yes. One of them wants to go and fuck and shit on the street. The other one yeah. wants to go and build a family and the other one wants to go and solve complex puzzles because it's, yes. it's actually yeah. engaging. Yeah. Right? So you're torn between the three. It's the Holy Trinity. When you find the balance, you have atonement. What's atonement? At one moment. At one moment is the unification of without contradiction. Yeah. That's the Bible. Yeah. And that that concept of the Trinity of biological, social, and intellectual from Piercing's metaphysics. Yeah. With the, with the, the foundation being inorganic, like the cross. Yeah. Um, that concept of the Holy Trinity is matched directly in triune brain theory which is the idea that we have the reptilian complex, which is biological value. Mm -hmm. We have the mammalian brain, which is the, the, the limbic system, mm -hmm. which is social value, which is empathy. Mm -hmm. And then we have the neocortex, which is intellectual value. Mm -hmm. 
So even neuroscience agrees with the concept of, of right. piercing, the Holy Trinity. Yes. Like these things, the, where they all coalesce, it's like a Venn diagram, when different right. schools of methodologies all agree in their fundamental principles, there's something special happening there. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. What, what does Peterson say that all true maps must align? Right. And these are all maps to some underlying ineffable divine principle or principles, I guess, but they're all, it's fractal, right? They're all self-similar. They're all repeating. They're all cooperating and competing like an economy. You know, there's tension between them. There's pain and suffering at every layer. Sacrifice is a necessary prerequisite to do anything frankly, right? You have, as you said, you have to choose between reptilian, mammalian, and neocortex action. Um, I don't know. It's truly mind-blowing. And, uh, you know, by the end of the book, I really value as primary, you know, like and not even the, I think at the beginning of the book, he asserts that value is primary, um, really calls into question every perception you've ever had because have you ever thought causality wasn't a thing yeah the fact that causality is just a misinterpretation of of very high probability outcomes of millions and billions of choices of tiny tiny conscious fragments yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's it, it, it's it's crazy it's, yes. it's crazy um yeah um one thing you, you said something out of you said you know cooperating and competing you know, these different tiers that they're mm. fractal and they're, they're cooperating, complete competing. What is cooperating and competing? It's exchanging. Yeah. It's exchange. Yeah. You can exchange in competition. You can exchange in cooperation. You can right. exchange. It's all exchange, right? All of it. Yeah. So economics is the architecture of exchange. Human action is right. the nature of exchange. Right. Leela is the nature of the system in which you exchange, right. which is exchange itself by value. Yes. It's all, it's all value. And if value is what directs choice or action, you know, when you take an action, you make a choice to take an action, you're expressing value. If you cross that line from voluntary to involuntary exchange among uh, peers in your group, right? Say people to people, then that's when it kind of, that's when it becomes evil, right? If I, if I engage you in involuntary exchange, if I steal from you or I take your life, right? Or I aggress against your property in any way, that's when morality within the layer is broken. But um, I mean, the author does make some case that the individual elements do have to sacrifice themselves to the higher layer, right? Sometimes the individual has to sacrifice himself to the social or the social has to sacrifice itself to the ideological um to make progress i think maybe what it comes down to is like you say when something is involuntary when you're so there are i, I don't know I, I need to i don't know enough about human action um one psychologist that i found fascinating uh was a was a student of freud a woman called karen horney and she wrote about um neuroticism of all things mm. and she recognized in the 30s they're called hornevian triads and I find them fascinating because they they seemingly are exhaustive categories for human action. There's only three of them, which is that all human action is comprised of three, let's say, modes of conduct, which is you can aggress, you can comply, 
or you can withdraw. Mm. That's it. Yeah. That's it. You can say, I don't know what's happening and I'm going to change it. You can say, I'm going to comply because I'm just going to go with the flow. Whether you like it or whether you don't like it, you just go along with it. And then there's withdrawal, which is to say, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to not participate. Mm-hmm. And when you withdraw, you can create your own system. When you aggress, you can change the system. When you comply, you just go with the flow. And I just found that that categorization was really interesting in trying to understand, you know, action, which is that everything comes down to three. And even when it doesn't appear to be, like when yeah. somebody's passive, when somebody is passive aggressive, mm-hmm. they are they are actually pretending to be compliant whilst while subversively being aggressive. Right, deceptive aggression. <laughs> deceptive aggression and then the question is does it come down to um voluntary and involuntary and and involuntary so for example if you're compliant because you believe in the system you're supporting that's one thing Mm -hmm. but if you're compliant because you have no choice then it's a completely different thing entirely so to me it seems like voluntary and involuntary are two sides of the same coin Mm. voluntary being dynamic involuntary being static trap mm. you know voluntary being freedom involuntary being static um right. imprisonment yeah but there's still a, a trinity there and it, I, I think that almost everything of significance in the world is a trinity mm. you know and the, the hornevian triads I, I when you see that just a clear categorization that's just a triad you yeah. go fuck nothing nothing escapes that what do you think about next time? Then? I mean, I don't know if we go straight into it, but the American emergence of American values is high on my list. To, I think it yeah. pairs well with the Brujo narrative. I think so. Like, All right, here's, so the, too. here's the microcosm, and then here's the macrocosm of the Brujo. Well, you know what's also sweet about going into the um, the War of Independence and the movement to the U.S. and the the inter- integration with um, the Native Americans is that we can also inter- inter- to weave it with the sort of the history of the central bank system that mm. finds itself into the, the American culture. And right. it's again, it's, it it's like with, that. Yeah. when Piersig talks about New York and the giant, it's a while away, he talks about there's a giant here that has control of things. Yeah. And, and you, whether you like it or not, you, you know, you're trapped. Yeah, he he is intuitively grasping the presence of a spectre, the state or the central bank. Yeah, and and what does the central bank handle? They corrupt the exchange. Yes, and, he's, and, and everything he's talking about is value yes. exchange, and yes. they are the ones that corrupt the exchange like a cancer. Yes. Um. So I think that we can potentially cross pollinate the narrative of the settlers moving west finding freedom with the Native Americans at the same time as resisting the monarchy trying to reassert its power, yes. but how that static system from Europe ends up weaving itself back into the culture and segregates the Native Americans, puts them on a small plot and treats them like prisoners, Yeah, you know, and they are the generators of the concept of freedom and yeah. the central bank and America, the, you know, the, the system crushes them. Yeah. So, I mean, Golly, it's so powerful that the static can, I mean, it fights back, right? It can, it fights back. Yeah. yeah it will, it fights for its own survival to not be subsumed. And when the, yeah. I guess when the payoffs are large enough, you know, it's, it can be very, be very motivating, be very powerful. Well, yeah. And it's, it's, we could talk about incentive structures as well. Like yeah. the, 
because incentives what what is incentives incentive is it's the potential it's the value payoff it's the it's the value received over the value given yeah the ratio and, of value uh, received over value given and the, cent, the central and bank the central bank is a f- free lunch on value yes so it's incentive to maintain that would be unparalleled yes yeah near near infinite yeah man i really think that that could be a great theme is for us to talk about the native american concept the victorian involution the the stasis of the culture in europe um and how the frontiers people dynamically settled and you know interweave it with the story of the private banks how there were thousands of them and how eventually all of that progress was curtailed in in the using the framework of um the creature from jekyll island yeah explain the the, let's say the reacquisition of power by the static system of europe yeah you know insidiously getting itself back in because it gives it another dimension to the applicability of of piercing's system where does the where do the victorians come into this well, because because Vic, Vic, the Victorians come in uh, when Piercing explains that the manifestation of Victorian values exists only on the East Coast, where mm. the Victorians settled and stopped. They stopped moving west because they just wanted to acquire property. Mm. But only the frontiers people were the ones that moved west, and they mixed right. with the American Indian culture as they went west. Which is why, by the time you get to the Wild West, what you've got is wild, which is freedom. You know, what we could talk about too is. The most valuable companies in the world come from the American West Coast. The highest expression of free exchange in the digital age. Fuck yes, and and to tie the, all this in to 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 make the concept of the metaphysics be applicable to the known world and to the Bitcoin legacy, because Bitcoin is is a is a let's say a digital battle on the digital frontier against these static systems, but it yeah. escapes their grasp, which the physical frontiersmen couldn't do. They couldn't escape the grasp of the static system. Right. Digital space was our next frontier. Yeah. So it actually, in some sense, leads up to Bitcoin. Yeah, I love this. I mean, that I just now put that together, but the most valuable companies in the world are born from the Western US, which would be the highest assimilation of American values or, or i'm sorry of assimilation of native american and european values so the most freedom loving entrepreneurial spirits the gold rush took them there right and they set up shop and now today we have the most valuable companies in the world because they optimize exchange to the greatest degree what does google do google optimizes exchange what does amazon do optimizes exchange what does netflix do optimizes exchange What's a, a complete, what's the word, um, confirmation of that point, but by using a, a, like an inverse example, is where the, the European settlers um, landed and stayed and grew like a um, tumor is Manhattan and New York, which is the center of the financial system where mm. all of the derivative markets were, were built on Wall Street, which mm. is all false value that's sucking the life out of yes. the marketplace. Yes. So on the West Coast is dynamic innovation and on the East Coast is static uh, stasis and, and manipulation. Yeah. So Wall Street is itself the, let's say, the, the protected garden of the central bank system right. being subsidized and 
it's it's a gated community of financial manipulation whereas the west coast moved into the digital frontier right and now they're once again they're trying to capture yeah trying yeah, to capture yeah. google trying to capture you know yeah. the the digital landscape so 